Most serene emperor, illustrious princes, gracious lords, I this day appear before you in all humility according to your command. I implore your majesty and your august highnesses. By the mercies of God, listen with favor to the defense of a cause which I am well assured is just and right. Two questions were yesterday put to me by his imperial majesty. The first, whether I was the author of the books whose titles were read. The second, whether I wish to revoke or defend the doctrine I have taught. I answered the first directly, and I adhere to that answer, that these books are mine and published by me. As for the second question, I am now about to reply to it, and I must entreat your majesty and your highnesses to deign to consider that I have composed writings on very different subjects. In some I have discussed faith and good works, in a spirit at once pure, clear, and Christian, that even my adversaries themselves, far from finding anything to censure, confess that these writings are profitable and deserve to be perused by devout persons. The Pope's bull, violent as it is, acknowledges this. What, then, should I be doing now if I were to retract these writings, wretched man? I alone, of all men living, should be abandoning truths approved by the unanimous voice of friends and enemies, and should be opposing doctrines that the whole world glories in confessing. I have composed, secondly, certain works against the papacy, where I have attacked such as by false doctrines, irregular lives, and scandalous examples, afflict the Christian world, and ruin the bodies and souls of men. And is not this confirmed by the grief of all who fear God? Is it not manifest that the laws and human doctrines of popes entangle, vex, and distress the consciences of the faithful, while crying and endless exhortations of Rome engulf the property and wealth of Christendom, and more particularly of this illustrious nation? If I were to revoke what I have written on that subject, what should I do but strengthen this tyranny and open a wider door to so many and flagrant impieties, bearing down all resistance with fresh fury, we should behold these proud men swell, foam, and rage more than ever. In the third and last place, I have written some books against private individuals who have undertaken to defend the tyranny of Rome by destroying the faith. I freely confess that I may have attacked such persons with more violence than was consistent with my profession as an ecclesiastic. I do not think of myself as a saint, but neither can I retract these books. Since your most serene majesty and your mighty highnesses require of me a simple, clear, and direct answer, I will give one, and it is this. I cannot submit my faith either to the Pope or to the Council, because it is as clear as noonday that they have fallen into error and even into glaring inconsistency with themselves. If, then, I am not convinced by proof of Holy Scripture or by cogent reasons, if I am not satisfied by the very text I have cited, if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's Word, I neither can nor will retract anything, for it cannot be safe or honest for a Christian to speak against his conscience. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen.
Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 22, The Epity Monk. Before Martin Luther, there was the English cleric John Wycliffe in the 14th century, who decided that the Bible was the only true word of God. This doesn't sound very revolutionary to Protestants today, but the Pope, who claimed he received revelations directly from God, didn't appreciate someone preaching that he was wrong. Wycliffe gained quite a following and even led the initiative that translated the Bible into English so people could read the Bible for themselves. Still, he was coming out of a medieval tradition and still thought along concrete lines. He firmly believed in predestination and preached an invisible church of the elect. Surprisingly, Wycliffe wasn't executed, but following his death from a stroke in 1384, he was declared a heretic. His writings were ordered to be burned, his body was exhumed from holy ground, burned, and his ashes were thrown into the river. His followers were persecuted, and his teachings were never turned into a mass movement like the Reformation. Then there's the Prague heretic, John Hus, who was active a couple decades after John Wycliffe, into the early years of the 15th century. Hus venerated Wycliffe, and was also a fiery preacher for reform of the Catholic Church. His king, King Sigismund of Germany and Hungary, convened the Council of Constance and generously offered John Hus safe conduct home if he would come defend himself. Hus arrived in Constance and was given safe conduct, right into jail. He was put on trial and refused to recant his teachings. Since Hus was unrepentant, he was declared a heretic, and when he was burned at the stake, the fire was lit with pages from Wycliffe's writings. This time, however, his followers weren't as easily put down as Wycliffe's. A series of Hussite wars resulted, lasting from 1419 to about 1434, in which it's been estimated that between 10 and 30 percent of the Bohemian population was killed. Martin Luther was definitely the first successful reformer when he came onto the scene a hundred years later. So what changed between Wycliffe and Hus and Martin Luther? Good question. But first, let's look just a bit into Luther's background. All indications are that Martin Luther was very earnest in his devotion and very concerned about his salvation. According to Catholic dogma, both then and now, if you sinned, you needed to confess your sin to the priest. Once you confessed, you'd be given penance for your sin usually instructions to say some number of Hail Marys and Our Fathers, though penances could be more extensive. Once you'd completed all your penance, you were forgiven. Still, Luther was not convinced, and worried greatly about his salvation. A couple of other events led to Martin Luther's famous 95 Theses. When he was still a doctoral student, he was sent as part of a delegation to Rome. When he got to Rome, he was shocked by the worldliness of the seat of his Holy Father. It didn't help that the Pope at the time was Julius II. Although Julius is generally credited, at least in part, with restoring the papacy after it had been greatly weakened by the disastrous Borgia popes, he is also recognized as carrying on the by then well-entrenched tradition of corrupt Renaissance popes. He's reputed to have had several mistresses and is thought to have fathered at least one child by them. This, combined with the general worldliness of Rome and its priestly class, was shocking to a young monk, very concerned that he was going to hell because he couldn't live up to God's requirement 
that we live a life of devotion and good works. The other event that greatly influenced Luther was a direct result of Pope Julius II's policies. Promoting and funding the arts was a passion among Renaissance princes. This was true in spades for Julius. He not only funded Michelangelo's painting of the Sistine Chapel, but spent lavishly on other art projects as well. He commissioned the construction of St. Peter's Basilica, the largest church in the world. Though it took over a century to complete, Pope Julius put massive energy into it as he did everything. He hired Michelangelo to design and construct the massive dome that's now on the church. In addition, he was known as the Warrior Pope, as he engaged in several military adventures to reassert the Vatican's territorial claims that had been lost under the Borgia Popes. Turns out that this was all quite expensive, so Julius didn't have the funds he needed to build the extravagant St. Peter's Basilica that he wanted. How's a pope to get the extra money he needs to construct an extravagant church when he's requiring tithes of 10% from all the families in Christendom already? Julius's answer lay in indulgences. Medieval Catholic theology held that when we die, if we're lucky enough to avoid the ravages of hell, we still don't go directly to heaven. We have a whole lifetime of sins that have to be atoned for first. So before we can get to heaven, we must go through a time of punishment in purgatory. Indulgences were a device that the medieval church used to grant Christians forgiveness so that they would have to spend less time being punished after they died and get into heaven sooner. Indulgences typically took the form of saying prayers, doing good works, or perhaps going on a pilgrimage. Enter Julius II and his obsession to build St. Peter's Basilica. Julius began to sell indulgences to the faithful, telling the superstitious denizens of the Middle Ages that they could achieve forgiveness for their affair, or that their beloved mother could avoid some or all of the punishment she had coming in purgatory, turned out to be a huge moneymaker for Julius. Johann Tetzel, a Dominican friar whose job it was to sell indulgences, was sent from Mainz to Wittenberg. Tetzel was very good at what he did, and he did it aggressively. People flocked to him to give the church their hard-earned money. Martin Luther, who was a professor at Wittenberg at the time, and still as devout in his beliefs as he ever had been, was shocked at the church's blatant act of telling poor peasants and good Germans that they could buy their way into heaven. It was shortly after this, then, in 1517, that Martin Luther posted his famous 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. If we were to nail our own theses to a church door today, it would probably be an act of defiance. But that's not how Martin Luther intended it at all. There is no email, Twitter, or Facebook at the time, and churches were local meeting places where people would congregate. So posting notices on the local church door where everyone would see it was an accepted way of getting the word out to people. In addition to nailing it to the church door, Luther sent copies to Tetzel's superior and several other priests and church officials he knew. Luther's intent was to start a constructive discussion about concerns he had regarding the direction the Catholic Church was headed. It turned out that local church prelates didn't see things the way Luther did. They thought church reforms flowed from the Pope and cardinals downward, not from uppity monks in backwater towns like Wittenberg. Martin Luther had three qualities that helped him become the greatest reformer in the history of Christianity. 
First, he had unlimited amounts of energy to pour into what would become his giant battle with the Catholic Church. Second was his sincerity. He was very earnest at this point in his life about his salvation. This earnestness would, in the latter stages of his battle, turn into an unshakable belief in the righteousness of his cause. Finally, Luther had an attitude, big time. He was humble enough when talking to someone in a calm, mutually respectful conversation. But if he felt he was being attacked, he would lash out very strongly. Challenging him only increased his levels of ire and caused him to dig in his heels. And when provoked, his language could become very earthy. So were Martin Luther's energy, sincerity, and attitude the reasons he succeeded in defeating the Catholic Church in Germany and launching the Protestant Reformation? Not at all. John Hus, John Wycliffe, and other would-be church reformers before Martin Luther also had these or similar traits. In Hus's case, perhaps even more strongly than Martin Luther. But Luther had two advantages they didn't, and that made all the difference. But we'll come back to those. The next couple years brought escalating conflicts between Martin Luther and the church. We don't know exactly when he came to the central point in his theology that irrevocably separated him from the Catholic Church. But I think the consensus is that it was somewhere during this period. Luther, who had suffered from constipation for years, evidently had an epiphany while on the john. According to him, it came to him in a flash of understanding of the passage from Romans 1.17. He who through faith is righteous shall live. For him, this was a life-changing conversion. All those years of worrying that he would never be righteous enough to please God and get into heaven were now over. He didn't have to be righteous to get into heaven. He had to have faith. And if he had faith, God would grant him salvation because of his divine grace. Luther said that it was as if the very gates of heaven had opened before me. He would no longer continue to torture himself by questioning his salvation. He was now assured that he would get into heaven, as he knew he had faith. During the first few years following the posting of his 95 Theses, Luther's debate with the church continued to escalate until he was summoned to the town of Augsburg to give an account of his position at the German Imperial Diet. He'd been successful in getting a larger and larger audience for his views, but unsuccessful in convincing those in the church who were upstream from him that the sale of indulgences was wrong. His opponent in the Diet was a cardinal who was respected as one of the most learned men in the Roman Curia. He argued that Martin Luther's refusal to accept the Church's power to distribute indulgences directly contradicted a papal bull written back in 1343. After three days of debate, neither side was convinced by the other. Luther quickly hurried back to Wittenberg. It was a good thing. The cardinal had been authorized to arrest Luther and bring him back to Rome. The next month, in November of 1518, Pope Leo X, Julius had died in 1513, issued a papal bull confirming the church's ability to grant indulgences. This, of course, put Martin Luther in direct conflict with the church. At this point, Luther still considered himself a good Catholic and agreed to refrain from engaging in any further public debate regarding the issue. But it was too late. The genie was out of the bottle. 
he'd convinced others of the righteousness of his cause, and they continued to debate without him. And although Luther tried to stay out of it, he was drawn back in during the summer of 1519, when a prominent church theologian challenged him to a debate in the town of Leipzig. The debate didn't go particularly well for Luther. When his challenger was able to get the audience to identify Martin Luther with John Hus. Then, in June of 1520, Pope Leo issued a bull declaring certain writings of Martin Luther heretical. As I mentioned, Luther had a very stubborn streak when attacked. He didn't take the Pope calling him a heretic well. He wrote a pamphlet entitled Against the Execrable Bull of the Antichrist. Once Luther's ire was up, he could go a little over the top. So denouncing the bull and calling the Pope the Antichrist wasn't enough for him. His students built a bonfire, and Luther threw a copy of the Pope's bull on the fire. You can guess how well that went down when the news got back to the Vatican. That's right, Pope Leo excommunicated Martin Luther. Finally, in 1521, Luther was summoned to the imperial diet at Worms by Emperor Charles V. But first, Frederick III, the elector of Saxony, it's kind of like the Duke of the province of Saxony where Wittenberg was, requested and received a guarantee of safe passage for Luther. Our opening this episode is a highly redacted version of Luther's defense at the Diet of Worms. The church condemned him, but Charles V was good to his word, and Luther left Worms unmolested. Frederick even had Luther kidnapped by his soldiers while on his way back to Wittenberg and taken secretly to Wartburg Castle for his own protection, where he remained for a year in order to evade any attempts on his life. This is the point in the story where the Pope has Luther arrested and burned at the stake, and Martin Luther becomes another would-be reformer like Wycliffe and Hus, whose reforms cause a big stir for a while and then die out with a whimper. Except it didn't happen this time. The reason it didn't is the first advantage that Martin Luther had that Wycliffe and Hus didn't. Luther had the elector of Saxony, Frederick III, sometimes called Frederick the Wise, behind him. The Pope, being a religious leader in Rome, couldn't arrest and try a German citizen. He would have to rely on the local prince for that, as the Pope had done with John Hus. But this time, the local prince wasn't playing along. There are a lot of reasons given for this. One of my favorites is the fact that Frederick's subjects all tithe 10% of their income to the church. If Luther started his own church in Germany, all of that money would remain in Saxony instead of going to the Vatican. But again, let's step back and take the big view. Remember what I said about the medieval mindset being childish and the Renaissance mentality being adolescent? It's in the nature of adolescents to rebel when they feel things are unjust. A prince from an earlier age would have felt more obliged to his religious superior, the Pope. I haven't seen any evidence that Luther had converted Frederick to his theological point of view, at least initially, but Frederick did feel that Luther was his subject and was entitled to protection. If you were to ask me, then, who was most responsible for the Reformation, I'd say Frederick III. If Martin Luther had been suppressed, another reformer would have arisen somewhere else. It was the age of rebellion against the church, and several other reformers followed Martin Luther in short order. John Calvin and Ulrich Zwingli 
to name the two most prominent. If Luther had been burned at the stake after he threw Leo's bull under the bonfire, he would be talking about John Calvin or someone else right now. Martin Luther couldn't have done what he did without the protection of Frederick III. Martin Luther had one final tool that Wycliffe, Huss, and other reformers didn't, and used it to great effect. Johannes Gutenberg printed his Bible around 1455 in Mainz, Germany. Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses in 1517. So by the time Martin Luther picked his battle with the Catholic Church, the printing press was an institution in Germany. There were multiple printing presses at Wittenberg, and all large towns in Germany probably had multiple printing presses as well. This makes the Reformation the first social movement in history in which any kind of mass media played an important role, and Martin Luther used it against the Catholic Church with devastating effect. In a day before there were newspapers of mass circulation, pamphlets were a popular means to disseminate information. In order for this to be effective, literacy needed to be widespread enough for sufficient numbers to read pamphlets. Although it's been estimated that only about 5% of Germans were literate at the time, it's also been estimated that as much as 30% of males in towns were literate. This still isn't huge, but these were the educated males, and likely to be the town leaders. At any rate, Wittenberg had a large enough literate population to support more than one printer. Martin Luther had boundless energy and was a master of the written word. One scholar took the time to estimate that if 1,000 copies were printed in each printing of a Luther pamphlet, a reasonably conservative figure, then during his career over 3 million of his pamphlets were read and distributed. Still, the coverage would have gone far beyond that. In an era before literacy, it was common for pamphlets to be read aloud to those who couldn't read. So, whether by a pastor who followed Luther, or a man reading to his family and friends, or to larger groups. There was a recent Tom Hanks movie, News of the World, about a post-Civil War veteran who traveled throughout Texas, reading newspapers to large groups of presumably illiterate townsfolk and farmers. We don't know how common these kinds of gatherings were in 16th century Germany, but it's very possible, if not likely, that they were another vector to disseminate Luther's ideas of salvation through faith. In addition to his ideas being spread in person, Martin Luther used printed pamphlets as a primary means to reach an ever-expanding audience, like Donald Trump dominating the relatively new medium of Twitter. Luther dominated the printing presses of central Germany, and in the years following his excommunication, he published more than the next 17 reformers combined. With the protection of Frederick III, then, Pope Leo X was unable to touch Martin Luther, and Luther spent the next couple of decades writing and spreading his message of justification by faith and the corruption of the Catholic Church. He completed a German translation of the Bible in 1543, which is generally considered to be an excellent translation and is still in use today in Germany in its revised version. Luther was a man of exceptional energy and intelligence. He continued writing, preaching, and organizing until his death in 1546. In short order, Lutheranism spread throughout much of Germany, both north and south into Scandinavia and the Balkans. In 1519, Ulrich Zwingli had begun preaching a theory very similar to Martin Luther's in Switzerland. His career was largely contemporaneous with Luther, 
and Zwingli changed religion in Switzerland as much as Luther had in Germany, though the geographical reach of Lutheranism was much greater. Then, in 1541, a firebrand named John Calvin began his career preaching predestination and strict theocratic morality in Geneva. His theology would grow to have an outsized impact on Protestant thinking in later generations. I mentioned during our discussion of the Roman Empire that the real question wasn't what caused the decline and fall of the empire, but what allowed the empire to last for so long. Empires generally just don't last a thousand years. There aren't aren't a lot of examples of empires lasting that long, but the Catholic Church did. I know, the Church isn't an empire in the strict sense, but let's call it a religious empire that spanned many different countries and languages. There's a rule of historical entropy that's as inevitable as the second law of thermodynamics. Okay, I made that up. I don't know if that's a real term or if anyone's ever taken the time to define it, but if they haven't, they should. The second law of thermodynamics tells us that entropy always increases over time. In other words, energy inevitably moves from more ordered states to less ordered states. Similarly, the law of historical entropy, at least as I'm defining it, states that empires always move from a state of more order to less order over time, that is, from being better to less well-governed over time. Stay with me here a minute. Physical entropy allows for local instances of matter in which matter moves from states of less order to states of higher order temporarily. But in the long run, you just can't get away from it. Energy will always move to a less order state. So it is with historical entropy. Every successful empire has a cohort of strong successful elements that create the empire and, very often, a capable leader and administrators to organize the empire into a coherent, functioning empire. The empire we refer to may be an empire spanning many different lands like the Mongol Empire in the 13th century or a modern nation like the U.S., which isn't an empire in the classical sense. But let's go with empire as we need a term that can encompass both kinds of political systems. The term elements we refer to here is a term borrowed from systems theory, and for us it means men and women who create the empire. Initially, they must have a strong work ethic to create the empire. The creator of the empire must be a good administrator and capable of creating a well-ordered empire. You might have someone like Genghis Khan who was great at conquering peoples, but not a great administrator. But he was followed within a few decades by his grandson Kublai Khan, had a genius for administrating great empires. A well-run empire can continue to grow, sometimes for a continual period of time after its creator or foremothers and fathers die. Kublai Khan conquered China and formed the Yuan dynasty 50 years after Genghis Khan died. You'd think that we'd learn the lessons of history after 10,000 years, but in every case, the desire of later generations to live beyond their means leads to poor economic decisions. But people of weak character just make poor economic decisions. Empires in their final stages inevitably fall victim to the same dynamic. I'd like to say that we'll get it at some point and stop doing the same thing that has led to the downfall of so many empires. But I'm afraid that it's one of those constant themes in history. 
As an empire amasses great wealth, people become ever more acquisitive and desire more and more in what might be called the triumph of selfishness, making poor financial decisions that weaken the empire. In ancient and medieval times, this meant that dynasties would fall. In modern times, this means that leading nations will see their economies fail and cede their positions as leading world nations, suffer a significant financial crisis, and bequeath to the next generation a nation in which their children and grandchildren will have much lower standards of living than they enjoyed. So all this gets us to the Roman Catholic Church on the eve of the Reformation. As with the Roman Empire, the question with the Catholic Church is not why it imploded and allowed the Reformation to happen. The question is why it lasted as long as it did. There, of course, were multiple reasons. But I think that the most important is that the Church had the great fortune to come to the height of its power during the Dark and Middle Ages. As we've discussed, a more childish mindset during the Middle Ages saw the world as black and white. It was the inferior's duty to do the will of his or her superior, no questions asked. And in the world of medieval Roman Catholicism, everybody was the religious inferior of the Pope. Once the abstract thinking of the Renaissance appeared, so too did free-thinking secular rulers like Frederick III. As long as the Pope could denounce a local ruler who was challenging the Pope's authority as heretical, and rely on the local secular ruler to burn that leader at the stake, the Pope would always be able to squelch any reform movement before it got out of hand. But this lasted only as long as the Middle Ages. But now, with Martin Luther, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, and others protected and able to speak freely against the Pope, Roman Catholicism no longer stood a chance. The triumph of selfishness had long ago taken over the Vatican. Pope Julius II spent enormously beyond his means. Not only did he begin the rebuilding of St. Peter's Basilica and other projects, but he also attempted to build a tomb for himself. It was breathtaking in its expanse and extravagance. Everyone knew that there was widespread greed among priests, bishops, and cardinals. The Catholic Church had tarnished itself too much to stand up to criticism from earnest, devout reformists like Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli. So what's happening with all the peasants and town folk that have either been converted to a form of Protestantism or have remained Catholic? To understand this, we need to understand how fundamental our beliefs are to us. Over and over again, we can find cases of members of breakaway religious sects being brought before the Inquisition and tortured to death while steadfastly refusing to abjure their beliefs. When simply saying, okay, I accept the church's teaching would stop the torture. We like to think it's medieval Christians who are like that. But we're all like We all develop our beliefs and tend to hold on to them tightly. There's a quote I ran into once by the famous physicist Niels Bohr. It goes something to the effect that there's nothing harder to do than change a physicist's conception of how the universe works. Whether clergy or scientist, it's an odd quirk of human nature that we all have our beliefs. And it's these beliefs that are at the bottom of who we are. So it was with the Protestants and Catholics who found themselves on either side of the Reformation divide. But there's something more than Homo sapiens on 
proclivity to hold on to a belief to define themselves. There's a strong desire to make other people like us. So it was with Ferdinand II, who held the title of Holy Roman Emperor about this time. Don't get stuck on the title. It's a German position. Ferdinand decided that all subject in his domain should be Catholic, just like him. It's an in-group, out-group thing. As we just said, what we believe is who we are. Ferdinand didn't take the rise of so many Protestants in his dominion gently, and Europe soon found itself in one of its bloodiest wars to date. True to its name, the war initially sparked in 1618 by Ferdinand lasted 30 years and would pull in nations from all over Europe. We haven't spent nearly the amount of time on wars that a true course in world history would demand, but we're looking for great turning points in history that brought us to now, not an overview of everything that happened. Take my word for it. Wars have been our constant companion throughout our journey so far, as they continue to be to our present day. It's far too often been history's default way of resolving conflicts. Muskets, pistols, cannons, and mortars were primary weapons and were used to deadly effect. By the time the Thirty Years' War was over, much of the countryside and many villages had been devastated, and over eight million were dead. So after more than a century of Renaissance and Reformation, and without airplanes, machine guns, armored vehicles, or planes, Europe was able to kill off close to the same percentage of the European population that would be killed in World War I. That's the thing about our long, slow climb up the ladder towards making humanity ever more humane, or, as I'll be referring to it, becoming ever more human. We've generally taken the ladder one step at a time. No, neither the Renaissance nor the Reformation brought us any closer to overcoming the in-group-out-group dichotomy that's been with us since Adam and Eve. At this point in history, Europeans were still like Jane Goodall's chimps in Gombe in that sense. As we saw with the Renaissance, we're witnessing Europeans stepping into their adolescence, so to speak. They no longer blindly accepted the black and white religious world presented to them by the middle-aged Catholic Church, but they used their ability to think abstractly, to think along new lines. Yeah, there's not much great scholarship that came out of this. There are definitely those that disagree with me on this and Luther was certainly very bright. But for me, the reason Luther and Calvin deserve to be studied today is that they were able to wake the church up from its long medieval slumber and redirect religious thought. But these guys were no Aristotle. This said, Martin Luther's translation of the Bible was excellent and helped to transform the way the German language is used. But as a whole, we were just in the infancy of our abstract thinking. His salvation through faith doctrine not outside the medieval box but ignored many passages in the new testament regarding the necessity of good works the book of james in particular emphasizes the necessity of faith with passages like the following redacted quote from james 14 through 17 what good is it my brothers and sisters if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds faith by itself if not accompanied by action is dead Luther wanted to leave the book of James out of his Bible because he didn't like the fact that it openly contradicted his salvation through faith doctrine. His colleagues convinced him that he couldn't mess with the Bible, though, and he included it, but he called the book of James the Epistle of Straw. So here we are at the end of the Renaissance and Reformation, and we're seeing thinking that's way outside the medieval box 
that we would have seen, say, at the beginning of the 14th century. It's definitely brought Europe out of their concrete thinking box and transformed the way they think. But most importantly, it set the stage for thinkers that will revolutionize European thought and provide the groundwork for the way we see the world today. Our reading this week is Printing, Propaganda, and Martin Luther by Mark Edwards. The study of how Martin Luther used the printing press to successfully conduct the first mass media campaign is fascinating. Enjoy. See you next week.